Let's give a word of thanks to the great orchestra and worship leading today. <clears throat> you can say amen, you can clap, give more money in the offering plate, whatever you want to do to express your appreciation, but that was great. That was great. One of the hardest things for me is to worship just before I preach. I wasn't planning on saying this, but it's because I'm so preoccupied with what I have to do. It's like taking communion. I want to sit and have someone else lead it for once so I can just focus. It's not that I don't worship, and sometimes I get caught up in the singing, and then I forget what I'm supposed to come up here and forget my microphone, and that never happens, but uh, last week I guess it did. But the point is, to focus our heart on worship is a challenging thing. I hope you're able to do that and appreciate it. An employer overheard her employee saying, if I had a $20 bill, I would be perfectly content. Well, she went to that uh, worker and uh, said, I I was just wondering what it would look like to see someone who's perfectly content, and I overheard what you said, so here's a $20 bill. <laughs> the woman was, ex or the worker was ecstatic, profusely thanking her boss. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for this wonderful gift. And the boss left, but paused outside the door to hear the worker say, why in the world didn't I ask for a $100 bill? And thus, contentment is elusive. It's hard to grasp. Rare is the soul that knows deep contentment. And yet, one of the writers in the Bible said this, I have learned the secret of being content. That, to me, is an amazing thing. And so I want to learn a little bit more about this writer and the situation in which he said it. And you'll find it in the Bible in Philippians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have most of this on the screen for you today. But it was the Apostle Paul in a thank you letter to a supporting church. The church in Philippi, which is in Macedonia, northern Greece. And sometimes we call the Bible letters books. And I think that distances ourselves from the actual occasion of a wonderful friendship between a servant of God, a minister, and the local church. This is a very personal and private letter. He says, I greatly rejoice in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. So because of perhaps Paul's travels and having a difficulty making a connection, um, they had the concern. Some people have the resources but no concern. Some people have the concern but no resources. And then Paul says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Isn't that an incredible statement? Can you say that? I've learned to be content. It's a process. You have to learn it. And it's a process that one learns over a, a wide range of circumstances. 
And when you learn about the circumstances, the Apostle Paul, I think you'll be even more amazed at this statement. As Paul wrote this thank you letter, he happened to be in prison. That to me is utterly amazing. Paul had faced multiple mobs throughout his career, had been beaten, stoned, with stones, not with alcohol. He had been uh, stripped naked in public, brought to the end of his life, and somehow could say, I've learned to be content. Listen to these words in 2 Corinthians. In troubles, always, hardships, distress, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, in hunger... Paul had been with the Philippians maybe about 10 years before he actually wrote this letter. In his travels, he was arrested in Jerusalem and put on trial before the Jews and then taken to Caesarea to be put on trial before the Romans. And then because he was getting nowhere, and that took years, he, he appealed to Caesar and endured a, a dangerous journey, Acts 27 tells us, to go to Rome and now he's in house arrest where he's going to stay two years. The guy's in prison and he says, I'm content and I have no needs. That is an astounding statement. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I could say I'm deeply content, not just in the best times, but in the worst of times? Whatever the circumstances, up or down, good or bad, discontent makes the rich poor, and contentment makes the poor rich. And there's nothing so wonderful as being properly related to God, so you have peace with him, and deep contentment in your heart, because you know he's in control. So the guy we're talking about is the Apostle Paul, and the circumstances are beyond something you and I have ever endured. And so if we would look at him and say, well, he's had an easy life. No wonder he is content. No, no. The chief of sinners was at the top of the list when it came to persecution, hardships, and difficulty. But then when we go on in the scripture, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want, I've learned the secret. I remember hearing a quote a while ago that said, you know what the secret of the Christian life is? There is no secret. Well, that's kind of a good quote, and in one sense I think it's right. But Paul says, no, no, I know the secret of being content. Would you like to know what that secret is? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us very clearly. And it's in the next verse, which perhaps is a verse that is often misquoted, a verse that is misunderstood, certainly in the running for the most abused verse in all of the Bible, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or as it says here, I can do all of this through him who gives me strength, which actually is a better translation. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Ever heard that quoted in a very inappropriate time? The boxer just wins his fight and he's being interviewed in the ring and the interviewer says, man, that was amazing. You pulverized him. You devastated him. You killed the guy. What do you have to say? And this boxer who can barely put a coherent English sentence together says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. How ridiculous is that? Have you ever used that verse out of context? Now, everything we need to do in the Christian life, we must do by the strength of Christ. But it's amazing how many people pray before a football game. Give me, uh, quote that verse so that we can win the game. Ludicrous. This verse is planted in the soil of suffering. And the secret of being content in any and every situation is simply realizing that Jesus Christ is your Lord. To love him supremely and trust him completely in every area of your life. That's the secret of contentment. It's not that you don't have any vision. It's not that you don't have any desires to improve and grow and and do more for the kingdom of God. It's just that you're resting in God. You love him supremely and you're trusting him completely and everything that happens to you must first be filtered through his loving providence and you're okay with that. And as a human being, I have to admit, this is really hard stuff. But Paul said, I've learned the secret and I know what it is to be content and that's going to be the chief characteristic of my life as I go about preaching the word of God. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said that health is the first wealth. Well, contentment is the new success. And contentment is something that gives the soul a rich peace and tranquility because of your reliance on Christ. You can face anything that comes your way. Now, to be honest with you, my purpose is not really to talk about Paul's serenity. It's actually to talk about the Philippians' generosity. But to get there, we have to understand Paul's situation and the background for this letter. So we go on in the text, and we notice this amazing portion of Scripture. Paul says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, which was probably about ten years before, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once, time and time again, when I was in need. So as Paul writes to this supporting church for his very active and dangerous ministry, he simply makes the point, it was good of you to share. By the way, their sharing was an extremely brave act. Because if you go back into that time, you realize that Paul was in trouble. That's what he says in verse 14. You shared with me in my troubles. We have to understand that uh, this church in Philippi, uh, which is, again, northern Greece, I want you to see the 
region of Macedonia, which not only stretches along the northern part, but actually descends to the south. Uh, in Greece, you have Corinth and Athens there in Acacia at the very bottom. Uh, so Paul's in this area of Macedonia, extremely Roman. In fact, many military Roman soldiers got their retirement and received land in this outpost of Philippi. They became the defense for the land, but they dominated the city, so it was not only a Roman colony, but almost totally filled with Gentiles. There was no Jewish synagogue because there weren't enough Jews to make up one. Here's an artist's rendering of what ancient Philippi might have looked like. It's noticeable that it's a, a fairly affluent town on a large hill. And here's a picture of the modern ruins today. By the way, some of the most amazing ruins that you can find outside of the Holy Land are in Greece and in this northern part of Philippi. It was, as I say, affluent. Almost every Roman colony had a wonderful theater. Entertainment was a big thing among the Romans, whether it was the horse races or the gladiators fighting or even the arts. It was all there. Now, when Paul arrived at Philippi, he began to preach the gospel and he found one woman who was affluent herself, Lydia, who was from Thyatira, a place in Turkey, and she sold purple linen and he shared the gospel with her. She was already a believer in God, but she came to faith in Christ. And then as Paul traveled through the city, there was a demon girl who used to follow and yell about Paul. These guys are servants of God. Listen to their message. What she was saying wasn't really bad, but everyone knew she was a demon girl. And giving approval to Paul's message wasn't the best thing. So he turned around and rebuked her and the demon left her. Now, there are some owners of this girl who profited from her ability to foretell the future, and they had lost their cash flow. They were very upset. And so they grabbed Paul and brought him to the magistrate. And I believe this is the original site of the law court in the forum, the Roman forum in Philippi, where all criminals uh, were taken. And the jail might have been connected there or not too far away. And on this slab of payment before the magistrates, Paul was accused. The owner of the demon girl said, these guys are proclaiming something that no good Roman could support or endorse. And without a trial, they stripped Paul and beat him. Silas was with him and put him in a jail. Now in the morning, he's going to tell them that he's a Roman citizen and they're going to panic because they did something that was unlawful. They could lose their jobs or their heads for breaking the Roman law. But Paul's put in jail, doesn't say a thing about his citizenship, and the guy can't sleep. Imagine that. Your black back is bleeding, you're bruised and beaten, and he can't sleep. So at midnight, what do you do if you can't sleep? You make sure no one else can sleep. So they sang. I mean, it seems a little bit inconsiderate, but they sang. And maybe it was the entertainment for the soldiers. And then there's a, or the prisoners, there's an earthquake. And the jailer comes in, and he thinks that all the prisoners are gone, which means he, he's going to be executed if the prisoners escape. So he's about ready to kill himself when Paul says, don't do anything, we're still here. And the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? 
and he gets saved. So the Apostle Paul ends up leaving Philippi and kind of running for his life, going to Thessalonica. He gets kicked out of there. Everywhere Paul goes, he's in danger from the Roman government. And here are people in the city of Philippi who say, we want to join you in the good work. And here's a gift for you to keep going. And they risk their own lives by identifying with the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that when you and I give gifts, rarely are we at risk. But we need to make sure that fear doesn't cripple our giving. The fear of what others might say. Or how about this? The fear of tomorrow. I may not have enough. The economics in this world are crazy. How am I going to know I'm going to have enough? And the fear of tomorrow will hinder people from generosity today. So there's a risk in giving. It's a brave act. It goes counter to all of our culture. It goes against what people say. You give how much to the church? By the way, George Barna did a survey not too long ago and found out that only about 4% of those who attend church give a tithe or more. We don't even have a tithe of tithers. Well, there's a lot of reasons that you don't give. One of the big reasons is you think what you have is yours. I think what I have is mine. But another is this fear of what may happen in the future. So the Apostle Paul gave. It was a brave act. It was also a rare act. Notice the scripture says, Not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. Imagine that. All of these churches that were in Macedonia, the, the Bereans who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, the people in Thessalonica, Neapolis, all these other places where churches were started and others, no one else joined with Paul. It's a rare thing today to have a church that's missionary-minded and will give generously of their resources to spread the gospel around the world. You know, a lot of the newer churches today, not all of them, a lot of the newer churches today are just holding their money in for their own thing instead of giving out to others. So it's a rare thing to find someone who's willing to be generous. Paul says, it's good of you to share with me. And the third thing is that it was a generous act. It was a brave act, it was a rare act, and it was a generous act. Because, as the scripture says, they gave more than once. If you want to know how generous this act was, let me remind you of the words I read a moment ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul said, I want you to know, remember about the kindness of God that he has done through the churches in Macedonia. Although they are tested by many troubles and they are very poor, they are filled with abundant joy which has overflowed into rich generosity. And Paul said, look at the gift, said to the Corinthian church, look at the gift that these people gave while being persecuted and poor 
for the work of the gospel to go on. I think one of the marks of a spirit-filled Christian is generosity. Because that's the characteristic of God. God's a giving God. And so if I'm not a generous person, I've got to ask myself, what's the reason? You've got all these fears. Well, give it over to Christ. And let your giving be a brave act, a, a rare act, a generous act for the glory of God. You say, I'm not rich, though. Neither were these people in Philippi. If you wake up in the morning and decide which pair of shoes to wear, you're rich. If you go to the refrigerator and have a choice as to what you're going to eat for dinner, you're rich. By any standard in this world, you are rich. And God has blessed us with so much, and yet we miss the blessing of giving and being generous. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Acts chapter 20. You've heard that, haven't you? What does that mean? It means there's more blessing in giving than receiving. How's that for an interpretation of the verse? Imagine a little, little child at Christmas time and the mother comes to the child and and says, son, how was Christmas? Oh, it was great. It was good. I got all of these gifts. It's, it's the best Christmas I've ever had. And the mom says to the little boy, son, someday you'll have a better Christmas than this. And it's going to be because you're not giving gifts. It's, it's going to be because you're not receiving gifts. It's going to be because you're giving gifts. And the little boy looks up to his mom and says, what? That'd be the worst Christmas in the world for a kid. But when you grow up, is it not more of a blessing to see the light in the child's eyes by a simple gift than it is to receive yourself? So maybe it's this whole matter of maturing and growing where we need to realize that it's good of us to share. Because all we have belongs to God. I tell you, this is an incredible gift. Even more incredible than Paul's contentment is the amazing generosity of those in Philippi who were under persecution and poor and yet kept giving. This isn't like giving a gift to Haiti. This is like receiving a gift from Haiti. And I wonder... How we measure up. But then Paul does something else with this portion of scripture. He, he not only talks about the fact that it's good of you to share. But then he says it's good for you to share. That is there's some blessing in it. There's something that can happen in your life that will transform you. And it's this idea of reward or credit. Paul is using commercial language when he says that I want not a gift. That's not what I'm looking for, verse 17. But I desire that more reward or credit will be given to your account. Earthly investments in the work of God 
pay rich heavenly dividends. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? So if you want to think biblically, if you want to be led by the Spirit, if you want to love Christ supremely and trust Him completely, when you are generous, there is a kickback. There is something in it for you. It's good for you to be generous because God blesses you with spiritual rewards. That's why when we partner with a missionary who is working in a place like Haiti, the blessings of their ministry and the spiritual rewards that they accrue are also ours because we're in this thing together. That's why if you can't go, you need to give. And you need to pray for those who go. And that's why I love the fact that this church is becoming more mission-minded every, every year. And God richly has blessed us. It's difficult to know the condition of a church because the church is made up of a lot of people and you don't know everyone's heart. But looking at it from outward standards, our church is pretty healthy and doing pretty well. And all the glory goes to God. But could it not be, to a large degree, the blessing of God that comes to generous people? Boy, if that's the truth, I don't want to miss out on this. I don't want to miss out on the blessing. And I need to give my heart to Christ first, as they did in Macedonia, before I give of my goods. Not only is it good for you in the sense of credit, but it is good for you because you're doing something that pleases God. This is an amazing text. 18. Paul says, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I don't need any more. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now think about it for a moment. He's referring to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And I don't know that I would put the word fragrant with a dead animal burning. <laughs> it's just like when I drive by a farm that's just been fertilized. And I'll say, that's fragrant. Well, I don't mean sweet smelling. I mean powerful. Overwhelmingly powerful. But to a farmer, they learn to say, you know, that's one of the best smells in the world. That's money. I love that smell. And when God's people would sacrifice as he ordained, and the animal sacrifices, the burning would go up into the face of God. He says it's fragrant, it's beautiful, it's a wonderful aroma of dedication and forgiveness and and acceptability, intimacy with God. Well, pleasing to him. Every time you give, God is pleased. We need to give with the right heart. Some people give out of obligation. Some people give with a bit of a grudge, reluctantly. But when you give voluntarily with a cheerful heart, there's a rich blessing. And it's not the amount. It's the heart. 
You say, Pastor, we must be doing really poor in finances. You haven't pulled out a sermon on money in a long time. <laughs> Frankly, we're doing very well because of the generosity of the people. Some of you are missing the blessing, though. We're going to have a celebration the first Sunday night in October of paying off all of our debt here at South. Isn't that amazing? All the glory goes to God because of generous people giving. So I'm not, I haven't brought up this sermon because, man, we've got to get more money in the pot. We don't need your money. <laughs> Did someone laugh? <laughs> Seriously. I agree with Paul. We don't need your gifts. But you need to give. And this is a good place to do it. This is where I give, among other places. And it's a free, it's a fragrant aroma before Almighty God. And there's one final thing I want to mention about this wonderful sacrifice, and it's this, it's the fact that there's a promise connected to it if verse 13 is in the running for one of the most mistreated verses in all of the bible this is right behind it and my god shall supply all of your needs my god will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in christ jesus that's ripped out of context time and time again We must understand a verse in its setting, the verse in its story. That's why we need to know about Paul and need to know about the people in the city of Philippi to understand that these are amazing statements of contentment and generosity. God meets the needs of those who give generously. That's the promise. God often blesses us, always blesses us more than we deserve. But he's not promised to meet the needs of just everyone. He's promised to meet the needs of everyone who's generous to the work of God. Because generous people reflect the character of Almighty God. It's an act of worship. It's a sign of dedication and devotion filled with rich, rich blessing. Years ago, there was a senator from South Carolina who was sent to Washington, D.C. doing his work. And a letter came to him from God. <laughs> it was sent to Washington, D.C. person thought maybe God lived there. And it got to the senator's desk because he professed to be a believer. And so he got the letter and the letter said, Dear God, my mother is very sick and we don't have enough money for the hospital bills. And my brother's in jail so he can't help. Could you send us $100? The senator was so touched by the letter. He didn't want to set a precedent so he put a $20 bill in the letter. There was an address Return, send it back to the person. About three weeks later, another letter to God from this same individual who said, thank you so much for the gift. 
The bills are still piling up. My brother's still in jail. Could you please send another $100? But don't send it through Washington, D.C., because they took out 80%. (laughs) You know, sometimes people give and they're just not sure whether it's going to be used for the right purpose. But one of the things I love about South, and I see some of our dear trustees in the congregation right now, there's integrity here. And I'm comfortable giving to God, very comfortable giving to God in this place. And let me just remind you again, you are never more like God than when you give and forgive. Heavenly Father, we lift up our hearts in prayer to you today, asking that you would make us people of great contentment and people of rich generosity. In both situations, it's because we love you supremely and we trust you totally. And then, Lord, we know the blessings from heaven will flow. In Jesus' name, amen.